the most important thing is to know what you can't know. And in product, most things you can't know. You can't know if customers are going to respond to your idea the way you think they are. You can't know how hard it's going to actually be to build something complicated until you actually get going on it. So his point was, you need to know what you can't know. You also need to admit what you don't know. And then you need to get good at going and learning those things. Hello and welcome to the Product People Podcast. Here we learn from the most amazing people in the product space for 30 minutes at a time. My name is Romoita and today we bring you the highlights of a conversation with Marty Kagan, hosted by Mirella, the founder of Product People, and recorded live at one of our community events. Marty Kagan is one of the most prominent names in the product management space, so he really doesn't require any introduction. At Product People, our mission is to help companies discover and deliver great products faster. We do that by doing hands-on product management work at companies of all sizes and also by sharing knowledge generously with our community of more than 20,000 product enthusiasts. To find out more about us and access our community, check our website, getproductpeople.com or head over to our YouTube, LinkedIn or Meetup pages. You can find all the links in the episode description. Now I leave you with Mirella and Marty Kagan. Hope you enjoy this episode. I think it's wonderful what you've done for the space and we're very happy to have you here tonight as a guest, Marty. What are the red flags behind a weak product leadership team? First of all, we should make sure we're on the same page because a lot of people use that term product leader for anybody. I mean, it's amazing. A lot of people use it to refer to a product manager. I don't. A product manager is an individual contributor. If you're trying to join a new company, especially for their first job, working for a good product leader is so amazingly valuable to a career, especially for your first couple years in the product world. If you're an engineer, designer, or product manager, if you are fortunate enough to get working for a good manager, it can make all the difference. So what do you look for? The most important thing I recommend people look for, and now just to be clear, we're talking about a first job here. I encourage people to don't worry so much about what the company does. Worry more about who you will work for. Literally the person you will work for, your, the hiring manager. Find out on that hiring manager where they learned product. Find out this right on their profile. If they've worked at a good product company, one that you know is a consistently good product company, that's a big advantage. Just because they've worked at a good product company and let's, let's even assume they know good product, it doesn't mean that they have the time or the willingness to coach you. But that's the second thing you're looking for. Is that manager somebody that will invest in me in order to become a strong product person? If you can find those two things, that is a great sign and a great place to start your career. That's, that is also why a lot of people like to start their career at Google or Apple or Amazon, because those companies have a lot of those two things. <laughs> they have a lot of good product experience leaders that want to coach and develop. There's a great quote from from Bill Campbell, which is, you cannot be a good manager today without being a good coach. 
I, I believe that I was trained. In fact, for the first 10 years of my career, every single day, I had at least one person who was dedicated to helping me get better at my job. It was almost always my manager, but not always. That, that's really the key. And if you can do that, I think, I wish everybody could get that. If I could make that happen, it would be a great thing. Cool. Thank you so much. What are the most worrying trends surrounding product management, product organization that you see nowadays and why? One of the most worrisome trends is scaling with process. You've probably all heard of things like safe, scaled, agile framework. That is as toxic to product and innovation as anything I've ever seen. Different worrisome trend for product managers, especially in Europe, but this is also a growing problem in the U.S. People don't go to product leaders and learn. They go to a process company and learn. They go to some agile certification to learn. Agile won't teach you product. <laughs> agile teaches you a process. It teaches you rituals. It does not teach product, just like it doesn't teach engineers how to code or designers how to design. But for whatever reason, the sort of agile infrastructure believes they can teach you how to be a product person. And the result are worse product people than I have ever seen in my 40-year career with product people. So thank you for the worrisome trends. Did empowering teams ever backfire in your experience when the persons were not ready for the autonomy and working better when they had less of it? Absolutely. In fact, many times I've seen that. Many times. And it's really the management's fault, right? It's the leader's fault. But what they often say is, yes, we're going to empower you here. <laughs> you go do it. But they haven't done two critical things that are necessary. The first is they haven't coached their people to be competent, to know how to, to work as a product manager, as a designer, as an engineer. In truth, it's usually the problem is not the designer or the engineers. Usually the problem is the product manager. So if you just take, for example, a classic product owner and you empower them, you are setting them up to fail. Product ownership is nothing compared to an empowered product manager. The other problem is, okay, let's say they are competent. Maybe we hire this person from a strong product company. They've done product very well. And the idea of an empowered product team is you're giving them the decisions to make. You're pushing decisions down to the team. But they can only make those decisions if they have the context. They have to understand the product vision, the product strategy. They have to understand the team topology. They have to understand the business context. If they don't have that, how can they make a good decision? So unless the leaders do those two things, those teams are going to be set up to fail. And so that's not, and, and that happens very often. In fact, it's easy to just for a leader to say, oh, you're empowered. It's hard for them to actually do the work to empower them. What do you think about product operations teams? So far, I have six completely different definitions that I have seen out there. And honestly, maybe more, but at least six distinctly different definitions of product ops. One of the problems with product ops is it's so general 
of a term and so new that people, it can mean anything. It can mean everything. It can mean it's all over the place. Now, so that's, ju that's not judgment. That's just an observation. I see at least six different definitions. Now, some of those definitions I think are very helpful. Some of those definitions are terrible. All they are is old problems under a new name trying to, you know, sneak back into the organization. There are always these process people that want to scale with process, that feel very strongly about process and control. And they were kind of chased out when Agile happened because Agile does not like that, but they wanted to come back in and there are too many companies where they're coming in and, and really under the title product ops and saying, our job is to make everybody more effective. So here's how you have to work. And the problem is when none of them actually know product, they just know process. So that's one problem. Another problem is when the product leaders are not actually doing their job, which is coaching, which is staffing, which is setting the product strategy, setting the product vision, that creates a big problem. And sometimes product ops is created as a substitute, sort of a plan B, because the leaders are not doing their job. So that's a problem because that's not how we need to solve it. We need the managers to do their job. They're the ones that have the depth. So again, it relates to the process problem. The third issue is, and this has been an old problem since the beginning of our industry, and I have you know, very little sympathy for it, but a lot of product managers complain that it's too hard a job. Just too hard, too much work. And, and they want an assistant. They want somebody to do the dirty work of play the product owner role. They want them to spend time in JIRA. They want them to do the reporting that's necessary. What helps a product manager to do good work is they need that full perspective from working with the engineers, designers, and the customers and the stakeholders. So you don't want to split that job. So those are three really common bad things that often pretend to be product ops. On the other hand, there are teams that do a really good job with this and do something helpful. You know, pretty much every organization I've worked with for decades now has a user research team, often called customer insights or something like that. It's usually part of the UX organization. And they have a data in insights team. It might be data analyst, data science, but they have a team that looks at making decisions based on data and then the others based on qualitative insights. And one of the definitions of product ops I really like is when they take those two parts and they kind of promote them in the organization and they put, they call product ops, okay, we have the data, data insights, we have customer insights. Those are now not buried in different parts of the organization. Those are a first class part of the organization. And the third part that's usually included is as a, a large organization, it totally makes sense to have one or two people who specialize in, you know, that are, there are actually very good product people that want to help share the best practices. And so that is often part of that as well. Best practices, making decisions based on data, making decisions based on 
customer insights, a significant number of companies that are defining product ops that way. I think that's very helpful because it's, it's sort of packaging and promoting three concepts that have proven their value over time and making it sort of giving them a seat at the table. Very good answer. So we, we've seen in, in our consulting and, and handle engagement, two different setups. It's sometimes product management and product ops or product manager and product owner setup. And I was commenting that I would rather have the product manager and product ops because when it is split between product manager and product owner, then, then there's a super big disconnect with the delivery development team as then the product owner is mostly an assistant who chops things and puts them in the backlog and the product manager becomes more of a business function, but kind of loses this connection with the developers and, and the user. So in that sense, product ops seemed like a more sensible way of scaling when you have, especially a lot of jurisdictions, you need to get feedback from. And we've seen well, this at one of our clients who operates in multiple cities. So there's regulation coming from every place. But but I, I agree that it may be also misused. That is the problem of splitting the job into two. Now, whether you split it as product manager, product owner, or product manager, product ops, no. That's, I mean, you need product managers to step up and take the job. This is, not everybody wants to do that. No question. A lot of people say, oh, that sounds like way too much work. It is. <laughs> But there's better ways to narrow it, not like that. Splitting the job anyway like that is just the same old problem. We've had that for a long time under lots of different titles. And that's what I mean by bad, bad behaviors sneaking back in under the product ops umbrella. Thank you, Marty. What have you seen as the difference for product managers working with ML or machine learning or AI engineers, uh, these teams have much longer delivery cycles and a lot more certainty is baked into their process. What would you advise this, this type of technical or data PM? Do you believe they're in some ways different than PMs who work on more UI user-facing type of products? Yeah. So first of all, a lot of companies are in this situation today. You probably know ML is an, a major area. Two things. First of all, Remember, there's always four risks in product, value, usability, feasibility, viability. When you're doing an ML powered product, by definition, you're going to have very high feasibility risk, very high, not the kind of thing you can usually address in a few days. It can take months. In fact, I know a couple companies that are taking years to address that. The cycles can be longer. In many cases, what's going on they're not ready to productize that yet. They have a whole product team, but they're not ready. The engineers are not ready. It's not yet feasible. That's going on, by the way, with other things. Bitcoin, with any of the Web3 crypto stuff, that is another one that is often further out. But once the technology is ready for productization, then it's really like any other product team with an enabling technology and product managers working with ML is it's fabulous. In fact, some of them are doing amazing work right now, but that's the difference. And I think that's what you're seeing is if a company, you know, there's a lot of CEOs that go like, oh, if we do ML, we're going to get so much more money and investors and stuff like that. 
but they don't realize that it can take a couple of years before they're actually ready to productize that, especially when they don't have the data that it's built on. I actually I love these kinds of things, by the way. I love, because, uh, you know, this is often where big innovation actually comes from. So I am not intimidated by hard feasibility problems. I love it, but it's, but you have to realize you can't expect the product is going to ship in two weeks, right? I mean, you've got, you've got some pretty big work to do first. Absolutely. Thank you, Marty. How do you see the role of CPO taking over CPO and vice versa? With, we've seen this in practice. There's sometimes a bit of a struggle there. And then the, the follow-up on that is there are a lot of cases we've seen recently at, let's say, maybe companies that are 100 to 200 people or up to 500, where the function gets combined into CEPO. What, what's your opinion on this? Well, I, I've also seen it combined, especially when it's small. Not so, you know, usually to the point of about one to 200 people, it can be combined. Now... And I don't want to be a hypocritical. I did a startup for five years where I was the combined. I ran because I had been a CTO before I was a CPO, but I was responsible for both. I tell people that is amazing amount of work. I worked nonstop. I mean, I had no life during those five years. Those are two huge jobs. So it is very difficult to do both of those. It's very difficult to do either one of them. There are some synergies for sure, but it's not that common. Now, once you get a little bigger, what usually happens is that person who's got responsibility for both ends up hiring a VP engineering and a VP of product, in which case you just have an extra level layer in the organization. But pretty soon, you, you know, they are two different jobs. They don't have to, you know, the title, whether it's chief product officer or vice president product or director of product, that means a lot less. What matters is, are you the senior most product person in that company? And if you are, there's a lot of work that comes along with that. Thank you so much. What's the advice you wish you would have gotten when starting your career in product management? There are so many things that I wish I learned earlier. That I, you know, this is just experience over the years. You learn things that, oh my gosh, it would have helped me so much back then. So many things. All right. I, I think the biggest thing I learned, and there were so many things. I want to be clear. I knew nothing when I started in product. I really knew very little. The person who was coaching me on product very quickly realized I knew nothing. And I had to learn all these different areas. I didn't know our customers. I didn't know our go-to-market. I didn't know our finance. I didn't know our analytics. I didn't know all these things. But the most important thing I think I learned, and I, the person, literally the smartest person I've ever worked for, actually the smartest person I've ever met, was, is Mark Andreessen. Some of you may know he was the co-founder of Netscape. And lucky for me, he was my boss at Netscape. And he, and even though he's the smartest guy I literally ever met, he also used to say the same thing over and over, which is the most important thing is to know what you can't know. And in product, most things you can't know. You can't know if customers are going to respond to your idea the way you think they are. You can't know how hard it's going to actually be to build something complicated until you actually get going on it. So his point was, you need to know what you can't know. You also need to admit what you don't know. And then you need to get good at going and learning those things. 
And when I was just starting out in product, it was in the model where the product manager was the person who knew, was supposed to know all this. And the product manager's job was to define the requirements. Literally, they were called PRDs, product requirements documents. The product manager was supposed to have the answer and write up the answer and the engineers were supposed to build it. And I believed that early on and it was completely wrong. What you learn over time is that you don't know those things. And what you need to do is acknowledge that, admit that, and get very good at discovery. That's why it's called discovery instead of requirements definition is because you are admitting you don't know the answer when you start. So I'd say if, I, if somebody had explained that to me right when I was starting, I would have been much better at product. Thank you. I think this is perfect answer. How do you see the product discipline evolving in the next 10 years? What, what are your assumptions and bets around it? Well, there's, there's what I hope would happen and what will probably happen. <laughs> what I hope would happen, what I've been hoping and trying to help is that the practices of the best companies would spread to the rest of the world. What will probably happen is the opposite. What will probably happen is that the bad teams will continue to grow in percentage and size. I just think that I just think the dynamics are such that there are so many leaders out there. Yeah, that's the thing. The demand for product is now not a little niche like it was when I started. Just there were a few tech companies. Now every company is a tech company. Or they're they're they need to realize that very quickly. They're all tech companies. Whether you're a music service, whether you're an ad service, whether you're healthcare, you're a tech company. And now everybody seems to know that's true, but that they don't, there is more demand for people and leaders for these than supply of good people that know how to do this. And the result is, yeah, for every Tesla, you have 50 Fords and 50, you know, Daimler Benz. And that's, that's the, you know, the wrong percentage. And, um, what would you see as the remedy for that? I think in, in some way, the work, the influential work that you're doing is helping that. But we see sometimes at our clients, your articles trending in the product management Slack channels and people being sometimes frustrated with some things and trying to influence to, hey, look, this is what Marty Kagan said about. So I, I think you're already fighting, let's say, the default bad setup through this, what other things could people do so we move in a better direction for, for the sake of everyone? Yeah, I know. It's, it's, a, it's a real battle. The, the Silicon Valley person in me, side of me, says we love this because these are all companies waiting to be disrupted. So let those big companies continue to work the way they like and we'll go in and we'll completely steal their customers. That's the story of disruption. That's the story of Stripe. That's the story of Slack. That's the story of Shopify. That's, we can keep going and going. That's Amazon's playbook. That's Apple's playbook. We'll just go and keep disrupting those companies. But, you know, I, I don't know. There are, 
it's a big, you know, especially that whole agile industrial complex, the people pushing things like safe, they have a lot of money and the people that they sell to are, they know what they want to hear and they're happy to tell them what they want to hear. And of course, anybody in the product world knows that that's nothing to do with agile at all. It's just using the agile marketing word as a buzzword. So yes, some days I'm optimistic and some days I'm very pessimistic. I saw a question come by in the chat saying, you know, is there a difference between product owners and product managers? Or are they just the same thing, different name? This is really what this gets to. So I, I would argue, and I think this is the root of the issue that I, if I could eliminate the whole job of product owner, I would. It's not really a problem in the U.S., but it is a huge problem in Europe. In the U.S., they, they're like, what do you mean product owner? What's That's just a role on an agile team played by the product manager. There's no job called product owner. But in Europe, there is. And in most companies, they're thinking that product owner equals product management. Most of them have never even met a real product manager. They don't even know what a real product manager brings to the team. Product owner is a, is a role on an agile team, right? It's maybe five or 10% of the job of a product manager. Product managers have to have deep knowledge of your users and customers. Well, let me actually make this real for you because I'll, I'll confess just how bad I was. I was an engineer for several years, an engineering manager, and then I wanted to learn product. And my manager was an engineering VP, so he couldn't teach me product, but he arranged for another guy. This was at HP Labs, another guy who had, had started four different business units at HP to coach me on product. And the first thing he did is he told me, look, I'm only willing to do this if you're willing to put in the effort. And he asked me, am I willing? And I said, absolutely. I want to learn this. And he said, all right, first thing I need to do is assess you. He wanted to know, first of all, how well do I know our customers? And by the way, I thought that was my one advantage because all the products I had worked on were products for developers and I had been a developer. So the first thing we need to do is is get you to realize that you don't know anything about your customers. That's what he literally said to me. And he told me specifically, I was not allowed to make a single decision until after I had visited 30 customers, 15 in the US, 15 in Europe. And immediately I learned that he was right. I knew nothing about our customers. They had very different educations. They, they were developers, but they were very different technology they were using, very different. We were in this little bubble. So first thing I didn't, he assessed was whether I knew customers. No, I didn't. Second thing he assessed was, do you know anything about HP's go-to-market channel? Go-to-market is incredibly important. It's about how do your products actually make it out to customers? I knew nothing. I didn't know how marketing was done. I didn't know how sales was done. I didn't know how the channel strategy worked. I didn't know any of this. So he said, well, when we do those customer visits, I'm going to arrange for two different sales teams to show you how go-to-market really works. I learned everything. I, I learned all these things I didn't know anything about. The next area he assessed me was, he says, okay, I want to know how much do you know about the analytics of your product? And so he said, can you tell me what the LTV is for your product? And I, I knew enough actually to know that LTV stood for lifetime value. 
So he said, okay, good. You are completely clueless about the financials and on the analytics. So what I'm going to do is, first of all, I'm going to have a book sent to you and you're going to have to study this book on finance, but also I'm going to arrange a tutor from this from the finance organization to tutor you on all the analytics for your product. Oh my gosh. And that wasn't even the whole list. I mean, but the point was, I was had already been doing engineering for these kinds of products and now I wanted to move into product. It took me, I mean, you have to realize I, I put everything into this. It took me about four months of real work before he said, okay, you're, you're able to make decisions for your team now. And I remember one of the first things I had to do was an executive review. And he told me that, you know, just so you know, in, in real product teams, the executives are not reviewing your product. They're reviewing you. They're making a bet on you. So they're going to judge you. And if you don't know what you're talking about, they are going to know these are smart, proven leaders. And they were. And all I know is that he had made sure that I was prepared. He, cause by, he had tested me, quizzed me, all kinds. And, and when I went in front of them, I could answer their questions. And he told me later that, yes, that's what you needed to do. You knew what you were talking about. That's what they wanted to see. They're fine. But if he had not have been coaching me, that would have been the end of my product management career right there, because I wouldn't have known any of the answers to those questions. They were all significant, real questions. So when you talk about being a real product manager, deep knowledge of your customers, deep knowledge of the data, deep knowledge of your business and how it works and the legal, the compliance, the go-to-market, sales, marketing, finance, the product manager needs to know that. Otherwise, they are useless to the team. You also have to know the industry. You have to know the competitive landscape, the industry trends. Otherwise, what is the point of the product manager? The designer doesn't have this information. The engineers don't have this information. So the point is, in all through Europe, I find this problem, and, in, and also in parts of the U.S., is mostly a European phenomena. We have these people called product owners that don't know any of what I just described. Literally none of it. All they, they don't even go to customers. All they do is groom a backlog. They spend time in Jira. They think they, my job is to prioritize. Useless. I mean, I, I would never hire or recommend anybody to hire a product owner. So you need a product manager. And that's the job of the product leaders is to develop these people. So, yeah, that was a, that this wasn't exactly, your, Thank you. but that wasn't exactly your question, but the difference between a product owner and a product manager is dramatic. Yeah. And, and I agree with your answer. Some of the things we are retained for are a bit on the lower end of product owner, but for the best customers, we've already moved on and product manager type of relationship. And this is also why our people are called product manager. So I, I fully agree with you. It's, it's already, I would say, if you're a PM watching this and looking for a job, if you see it called product owner, it's already a bit of a red flag, even if it's in Europe. So maybe not red, maybe it's orange because they want to differentiate with, between some other parts of the organization or there's some political naming, but it's still 
something you should consider. This was Marty Gagan. Thanks everyone. And thank you again, Marty, for your time and your insightful answers. It was lovely. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to this Product People podcast episode. To check the full conversation with video and to see the talks from other guests, head over to our YouTube page. The next episode will feature April Dunford, author of Obviously Awesome. Make sure to follow our show on your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss it. See you next time.